Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast series for owners and key stakeholders in privately held companies and the professionals that surround them. My name is Josh Pottinger, and together with Jason Chorogianis, we run ATX Wealth Partners which is the private wealth management team here at UBS. Jason and I are both private wealth advisors and senior vice presidents here at the firm. And we are located at the UBS private wealth offices here in Austin, Texas. And we can be reached at 512-542-7518 or email at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. Now, Jason and I have each about 30 years of experience in the financial services industry. And our goal here is to bring real world perspectives to help you prepare yourself, your family, and your business for the day that you decide to begin monetizing some or all of your ownership position in your company. And throughout this series, we will provide our own thoughts as well as interview key people along the way. Now, our team, hosts numerous educational and informative events in person and virtual events throughout the year. So if you'd like more information on those, send us a note and we will keep you in the loop. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Hello, everyone. This is Josh Pottinger here with UBS ATX Wealth Partners, and I'm excited to have our next guest speaker here, Justin Waring. He is one of my UBS colleagues here. He's a senior total wealth strategist in the UBS Chief Investment Office, where he advises investors on global investment strategy, behavioral finance, portfolio management, and the UBS Wealthway Framework. And Justin joined UBS back in 2008. uh, And before he joined the chief investment office, he actually worked on a private UBS private wealth management office out in Washington, D.C., advising families on investment strategy and spearheading uh, portfolio management. So Justin also is well-credentialed here. He's an accredited portfolio management advisor and also a certified financial planner. So Justin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Well, good. Well, good. So we're always looking for interesting people to have on the episode to talk about key considerations for owners of companies thinking about having some sort of exit down the road. Uh, And obviously, there is a lot that comes with that. And When our team was digging around, looking at some of the research that the firm puts out, we came across one of your presentations. It's called Uncommon Success, Wealth Strategy for Entrepreneurs and Business Owners. And that caught our attention. And, um, you know, there's basically the the presentation there addresses how, how should a uh, a business owner manage their wealth before selling their business. You know, is the is the is the sale price going to be enough, and and how should you manage that wealth after selling the business? So these are obviously very very important questions that I think business owners out there need to know. So we reached out to you, and you're kind enough to agree. So we're sitting here. So thanks, Justin. So let me go ahead and dive right in here with the first question. Now, why are business owners different from other investors? And how do these differences really impact their path to to financial freedom? It's a great question. I think that business owners are in many ways less risk averse than other other people. 
a lot of people get on the career path and they slowly accrue money out during the course of their life. And as they accrue savings and investments, they're investing in a diversified portfolio. Whereas a business owner is often really piling all of their earnings into a single stock, essentially, into their company. Sometimes they you know, support the growth of the company at the expense of meeting their own short, shorter-term savings goals mm-hmm. and progress towards accruing a retirement nest egg because the company is the nest egg. And so one of the challenges for, for business owners is that they, they have this single asset that they have lots of control over. They feel, they feel less risk averse about having so much concentrated risk because they have control over the company. They understand what could go right and what could go wrong very well. They are experts at this company but they are often under diversified and uh, under allocated to other investments, which makes it difficult when they, when market valuations don't, uh, don't match up with what the valuation that they were hoping to get. And at the end of the day, every business owner needs to exit the company and hopes to do so at a valuation that supports their ability to achieve their goals. And when you're getting older and, the market valuations aren't there, you can end up in a very difficult situation of being forced to sell the company at a valuation lower than what you would expect it to to mm-hmm. fetch in the market. And maybe in some cases that, that means that you'll you'll continue working beyond when you could have retired in order to try to to, to fix that situation. Yeah, we um through the the exit planning certification process, you know, that's what we call the wealth cap, right? It's like um you know, mm-hmm. People have their longer-term goals and objectives, and a lot of those goals have financial requirements. And so matching that up with their ownership interest in the company and what that exit could look like is obviously a key ingredient in figuring out whether or not <laughs> they can actually accomplish those goals. And yeah, so if, if, a, if a business owner already has most of their net worth, tied up in the company, which generally speaking, in my almost 30 years of being in, in, in the business here, majority business owners have a huge piece of their net worth tied up in their company. Mm-hmm. How should they go about investing the rest of their wealth? And you touched on it a little bit just now, you know, with being highly concentrated and not, you know, lack of diversification. So let's talk about kind of the, well, let's say, I know that the uh, Exit Planning Institute has talked about, I, f- I forget the ex- exact numbers, but I think generally speaking, most business owners have like 85, 80, 85% of their net worth tied up in their company, mm-hmm. which is a huge piece. You know, how, how should they think about the rest? So I think that there, unfortunately, there's two ways that, that business owners often do this sort of instinctively. The first is this: uh, they recognize that this huge concentrated position in a single stock is very risky. And they therefore take the rest of their wealth and invest it in liquid safe assets, municipal bonds and cash to protect them against the risk of an economic downturn, which would hurt the value of their business and sometimes requires the business owner to accept a reduced salary or even potentially put some of their liquid investments into the company to keep it afloat through a period of economic distress. Another approach is to write off the value of the business entirely and invest as if it doesn't exist. And, you know, neither of these approaches is particularly optimal. You're 
what for one thing, viewing your concentrated position in your own business as as an investment in stocks isn't quite correct because your business is very unlikely to be highly correlated to the stock market at all. If we look at individual businesses correlation with the overall stock market, it tends to be quite low. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, if we look at things like business bankruptcies and, and um, sort of distress periods, you know, they can happen and often do happen outside of recessions. Smaller companies are not tend to not be very well diversified. And so they can be subject to very idiosyncratic risks as opposed to being fully exposed to the broad market risk or broad economy risk. Obviously, you know, if you if you have a widget store, then your consumers of widgets are the most important thing to you. It may not many, many aspects of the broader economy may not matter. And so these smaller, more niche businesses are not really equivalent to having exposure to the stock market. And therefore, owning stocks in addition to your your private company would actually be diversifying your wealth Mm -hmm. and helping you improve the risk adjusted growth of your overall wealth. It also keeps you on track to growing your wealth in case the business doesn't sell for quite as much as you had expected. And the approach of writing off the value of the business entirely is probably far too pessimistic for most people. Hmm. And it's 85% of your wealth. It doesn't make any sense to not acknowledge its existence and plan around it. It really, sh- you know, we need to have a plan that balances your risk exposure and hopefully gives you a glide path a gradual exit from the business, selling you know portions of the business, or or at least like locking in the value of portions of the business over time, rather than treating the exit as one immediate event, which mm-hmm. which obviously is is incredibly subject to market timing risk and and the valuation that happens at the at the time of exit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of brings up a couple things, triggers a couple things in my head, which is number one, usually they when they do invest in, in other companies or other equities, they tend to wanna stick with what they know, the same sector. Mm-hmm. So if they're running a tech company, they love technology and they stay in that same sector, right? And so there's a there's a tendency to, to have a bias towards things that they know, which can be problematic, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that comes to mind is for a business owner to really acknowledge their what kind of business they have and i would say is it a lifestyle business is it something where they're what i call scraping the table every year they're taking all the cash off and putting that in their bank account and using that to create a lifestyle for themselves or are they trying to build enterprise value are they trying to build a company that they can actually sell because you can have a company that's generating a lot of revenue but not transferable to somebody else, right? And so I think a lifestyle company versus an enterprise value, those are two key things to kind of take into consideration. And then they each have their own set of risk issues. That's right. You know, in the case of a lifestyle, in, in, the, in the case of a lifestyle business, and they're relying on that to generate cash flow for themselves and their family. And something like a global pandemic happens, you know, that can wreak havoc on your lifestyle, right? So lots and lots of, of moving parts. So let's let's talk about actually some of the challenges that, that business owners have before they sell their business. What are what are some of the things that you've come across? 
Well, I think that you've made an excellent point there, which is that uh, your relationship with the business can be much more than just financial. You know, many business owners have, have very deep interpersonal connections with the people that work with them. They treat the business not necessarily as a purely profit-making enterprise, but they also want to make an impact on the community. They want to provide employment opportunities for their neighbors. And they they also treat the company, rather than as an external entity, as maybe part of their family wealth. And that intermingling can make it quite difficult if you go to sell the company, because anyone trying to purchase your company will want to see clean books and doesn't want to have a loan outstanding to your your brother-in-law or anything like that uh, still sticking around. So if you do, if you are on the path to an exit from the business, you know, there's going to be a transition period where where you'll need to clean up the books and get everything ready so that it looks as as clean and as attractive as possible to a potential buyer. But yeah, I think to your point also about if you rely too much on the company's cash flows, to finance your day-to-day expenses and things like that, you know, you may be jeopardizing its growth opportunity and therefore the value you would be eventually able to sell to someone. So it may be something that you want to adjust over time as you approach your own retirement, you know, transitioning it from a source of income for your own savings and spending needs towards reinvesting for opportunities and trying to make the overall valuation of the company look more and more attractive as you approach a, per, a, a prospective sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good summary. What let's, so we've been talking about some of the unique challenges that business owners have versus like traditional investors out there. We've talked about the concentration of wealth tied up in their company and some of the unique challenges. So let's, move to some of the hurdles that business owners face in the years after they experience a liquidity event. Many of our podcasts, obviously, or have, not obviously, but have been (laughs) focused on the preparation phase, the pre-exit planning um, Mm -hmm. side of things. Now, once once they go through a process, and let's say they do have a successful event, what, let's talk about some of the hurdles they have afterwards. Yeah, I, I probably should have touched this earlier when we talk about how business owners are different than other investors. Other investors see their their net worth gradually growing over time in an investment account, and they get used to market volatility. I mean, it's never comfortable for anyone, but seeing your wealth lose 10% when you have $100,000 is a very different feeling than when you have a million dollars. And unfortunately, you know, it is very difficult for people to to acclimate to market volatility, but it's, it's especially difficult for people who are investing wealth, you know, the the majority of their wealth for the first time in public markets. So if you if you go from having eighty five percent of your wealth in your private company to now a hundred percent of your wealth is is invested in public markets, now you're talking much larger dollar amounts and much larger dollar amounts of volatility. You may not also, I mean, also business owners are very, very intensively focused on their businesses and often, you know, don't attribute that type of focus to other things. But once the business has been transitioned away, they have a lot more time on their hands. <laughs> so they they pay a lot more attention to what's going on in the market and what's going on in their account. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they have these behavioral bias of, I like to... Uh, you know, basically use the analogy of what's called the coastline paradox. 
So the, if you try to measure the coastline of the United Kingdom, you need to decide how big the ruler you're going to use is. Because if you use a mile-long ruler to, to measure every edge of the, of the shoreline, then you'll get a certain You'll get, a, you'll get a couple thousand miles of, of shoreline. But if you were to sit there with a foot-long ruler, it's virtually infinite, <laughs> the, uh-huh. the shoreline of the UK. Uh-huh. And this is the thing. is like the more often you look at, at market volatility, it exponentially increases the perception of, of risk. And, and now you multiply that by a much bigger dollar amount. So you've got more attention, more wealth, and therefore a much higher perception of, of risk. Uh-huh. And this is coming from a business owner that has had their wealth tied up in an individual company that there was risk, you know, but the market, they didn't see the market valuation of their company every day. Right. <laughs> right. Yep. And, and so that is a very different type of risk and it takes a while to get used to this new type of risk. So a lot of business owners upon exiting their company tend to be overly conservative in their investment strategy while they find their way to acclimate to the new market. And this unfortunately means that they're going to, it's going to make retirement a bit more expensive. They're going to miss out on a little bit of growth. I mean, obviously that's better than trying to buy the ideal portfolio and then realizing that you can't stick with it and uh-huh. having to sell during a drawdown. But right. ideally, you know, in the years before you exit your business, you would try to spend a little bit of time talking with your financial advisor, preparing yourself and, 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 and learning about the expectations that investors in, in public markets need to to take on in order to be successful investors. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you're bringing up some excellent points that that I've dealt with for my entire career, and that's and I've and I've made some mistakes in assuming just because somebody was the CEO of a highly successful company and had an exit, or say took some chips off the table, that they were aware of uh, of the volatility that comes with investing in the public markets mm-hmm. and that can really catch people off guard if they haven't been educated on historical returns what volatility means what drawdowns how long do those drawdowns typically take you know what is a typical peak to peak cycle and so I've learned some important lessons, you know, over the years. So we try to spend a, you know, a fair amount of time in the beginning making sure that, that that clients are comfortable with that. And then one thing that is super helpful, and I know you are, you know, definitely all in on this, which is the UBS Wealthway framework, which, you know, I could, you know, some would say it's a marketing thing, but it's a it's a very, very powerful, it's a very simple solution to a very complex problem. And that's where, you know, for those of you out there that aren't familiar with the Wealthway framework, Justin, actually, and let me, rather than me explaining it, let me, let me let you, you do that, take that one. So maybe walk the audience through what that means. Sure. And how it can, and how it can help them. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that that you, you just mentioned about getting used to market volatility and sequence of returns risk and, and drawdowns is that that's another aspect that is really true for everyone. Transitioning from your working years to retirement, turning off that spigot of income from your salary does transform your relationship with market volatility. Because now the money that you take out of the portfolio, if you're taking it out during a drawdown, you're locking in an otherwise temporary loss 
and then there's less capital to grow and, and during the recovery, which then means that you have less capital to spend for the future. And for most of your career, you're adding money to the portfolio. And so if there's a market drawdown, that's actually a good thing because you're able to buy at yesterday's prices and then the market continues higher from that point. So these dips are actually opportunities, but your relationship with market volatility shifts quite substantially when you enter retirement. And that's why we have built the UBS Wealthway framework. It's a, it's a strategy to try to align your investment strategy with your financial goals, acknowledging the fact that your, your wealth and your, your plan are going to adjust over time. So when you transition from working to retirement, now you need, you, there is a certain pool of capital we call the liquidity strategy that you need to set aside away from stock market risk to finance your, your spending needs from the portfolio for the next three to five years. During your working years, your, your spending is covered from your salary. So you only need really an emergency fund. But during your, during your retirement years, you want to have three to five years of spending set aside for market risk to finance your, your withdrawals from the portfolio because when a bear market happens, which is a 20 plus percent drop in the S&P 500, it generally takes most portfolios three to five years to fully recover from those losses. So you have a drawdown period of about nine months and then a recovery period that uh, takes around three to five years. And so you really want to be able to, to fund your spending without having to lock in losses. The liquidity strategy is cash and bond ladders and borrowing capacity that are not going to be affected by stock market risk. And then the longevity strategy, which is the second strategy in the UBS wealth way, is really what is the amount of wealth that you need to meet all of your lifetime spending through the end of your life. And so if you take liquidity and longevity together, this is essentially what everyone thinks, like how much do I need to retire? And fortunately for many business owners and many families that, that have been successful you know, in their careers, there's also a third strategy called the legacy strategy. And this is the wealth that exceeds what you need to meet your lifetime, lifetime spending. And this is an opportunity for you to invest a little bit more aggressively and take advantage of some tax strategies to enhance the wealth that you're able to give to others either to the next generation or to charity. And so by building the, these three strategies and sizing them appropriately for your goals, you're able to build a portfolio that's dynamic to your changing goals. Because the truth is that there's no one-size-fits-all investment strategy. This is the, this is the, tr the real deep truth of, of wealth management is that every family has a unique set of goals and resources and in order to properly mobilize these resources, we need to think of the portfolio in segments so that we can build an optimal portfolio for each type of time horizon. You don't have one risk profile. You don't have one. No one, no one is just a moderate investor or just an aggressive investor. Mm -hmm. We really need to acknowledge also the, the inherent, what I call patience of the dollars in your portfolio. Some of the dollars in your portfolio are going to be the last dollars you spend in your life, and that's 60 years from now. That that dollar can be invested in virtually 100% stocks because stocks have never lost money. 
over a more than 20 year time horizon. But there's also a dollar you need to spend next month. And you really can't rely on the stock market to provide you that dollar because the stock market can drop 50%. Uh-huh. And so there's a spectrum of risk across your portfolio. And the UBS Wealthway allows us to build a framework that assigns risk according to the inherent patience of your financial plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was 15 years ago, maybe not quite 15 years ago, that we came across what we used to call the three L's. Mm-hmm. And it was in a, a guy that used to be at, at UBS many, many years ago, and he publi- published this idea you know, of, of compartmentalizing your wealth into these three different disciplines with a very specific time frame and a very specific risk measure. And it made so much sense for to us as a team that we started implementing this in our practice. And we've gone through some pretty challenging times, obviously, and it's helped just abs- just enormously. It's given people the ability to be able to withstand some of these market dislocations because we've set aside enough capital for them to to be able to take care of themselves. So it's a it's a very powerful strategy, and the kind of the I think the genesis of this whole strategy was a lot of the work that was done maybe 25 years ago on behavioral finance, and it took a lot of really smart, educated PhDs at some of the finest universities out there to come to the conclusion that we human beings get very emotional when it comes to our money. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Go figure. Um, And so, yeah, that's – it's. you know, and and, and I, I tell people this all the time, our, the work that we do for people, it's part art and part science. You know, the science part is relatively straightforward, numbers, statistics, but the art part is trying to develop a portfolio that a client can be comfortable with and have the highest odds of them not abandoning that strategy during a difficult time period. And that's not always an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, our, our brains are not built for doing compound return analysis. Mm-hmm. We don't understand, we don't inherently and instinctively understand compounding. And so mm-hmm. it's very difficult for us to balance opportunity costs, the, you know, the, the risk of missing out on future returns uh, against the the much more obvious risk of my portfolio is down. And now I have the fight or flight response that the human brain has spent, you know, million years evolving. <laughs> yeah. Right. You've got, uh, yeah, that's the, that, that's the inherent difficulty of finding advice that is both quote unquote optimal from a science perspective, but also easy to follow through on. And so the UBS Wealthway takes advantage of what's called the mental accounting bias, which is the tendency for us to make uh, arbitrary categories around our wealth anyway. Mm-hmm. We tend to do this just instinctively, you know, to think about the the jar over the fridge where you put money that's going towards the trip to Disney World, or uh, we treat our checking account as as the as a separate entity from the rest of our wealth to manage the the cash flow in and out, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Some people have an account set up just for car payments and things like that. So this type of tapping into instinct, instinct and the natural way that we think about wealth, it does make it a lot more comfortable to live through market environments. And 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 difficult market environments are rare if you zoom out. Mm-hmm. Bear markets represent only maybe 20, 25% of the investment experience over the long run. 
but it feels like it's at least half of the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, that reminds me of something that we talked about a little earlier here in our conversation, which is when somebody has their uh, part of their balance sheet tied up in, say, real estate or their business or a privately held company, they don't see a value on those assets every second of the day. Versus when you have a liquid portfolio and it's invested into a diversified portfolio of, of, of public markets and, and, and fixed income. And usually we're going to have some private equity and some hedge fund type of exposure in our in our portfolios. But generally speaking for the public markets, they can look on their phone every single second of the day. And <laughs> you know if, it, if it's a $20 million portfolio and it's down 10%, that's a big number, you know, from a dollar standpoint. Right. And so you're, and when you have a, like we, there's another person that we've been talking to recently that just sold their business. This is a multi-generational family owned business fourth on their fourth generation. And they just sold it for, I don't know, I I think somewhere in in the 50, $60 million range, you know, now they've got a lot of liquid money. They didn't feel like they had a lot of money when they had the business, but Mm -hmm. now, I mean, they are like, I mean, to your point, super, super conservative right now because they're afraid of losing this money, right? And so that's a big, big emotional hurdle to kind of get through. And it's going to take some time to help them get comfortable with portfolio construction and what that experience is going to look like. And, you know, you can see it on paper all day long until you, like, pull it up on your phone or on the computer screen. It's a different story. (laughs) What's that Mike Tyson quote? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's right. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) It's like you can, you can read about Mm -hmm. market cycles all, all day long, but until you experience one, it's not real. Yep. I remember a colleague of mine told, you know, we were talking about the difference between knowledge and, and, and wisdom Mm -hmm. is, you know, knowledge, you can, you know, read stuff in the books all day long, but until you apply that knowledge over a period of time, that's when you develop the wisdom part, right? Yeah. And I think that that's a, something that's always stuck in the back of my mind, at least. So, okay, let's let's talk about the process, like families that are going through the process of selling their business. You know, what are some strategies that can help them reduce the stress and improve the probability of of success? You know, they're managing a family They've got the personal stuff they're dealing with. They got the business they're trying to run, all the fires they're trying to like put out and deal with running a process. That's a lot. That's a big load. And so what are some of your thoughts around helping them manage that? I think obviously having a financial advisor you can bounce ideas off of and, and help you build a formal plan and plan A, plan B, plan C for exiting. Talking with other entrepreneurs who have gone through the process and, and sold their business, can, especially if they considered multiple offers and have some experience, you know, identifying the the right person to purchase the company. But also, you know, don't stress so much over. I I think if you're if you're if you're on the on the exit ramp, and you're preparing the sale of your business, this is a process that's going to take several years. Don't be so overcome with the outcome 
focus instead on the things you can control and the steps along that path in terms of getting the ready the business ready for sale. And you know, when you talk with a financial advisor that has a lot of experience, like like you do, Josh, in the exit planning space, it actually is a very interesting and complex process because there are so many options out there for the sale of your business. And that is that is an area that is worth investing some time to learn about because you know certain certain purchasers of your company are going to want to see certain characteristics on the books. And so if you are able to identify your um, intended buyer or class of intended buyers a few years in advance, it gives you time to to transition the company and get it well-tuned for, for that eventual exit. Mm-hmm. Well, we see it all the time. You know, most, most business owners don't have a, a formal exit plan in place. And, um, when we interview and talk to people after the exit, they always usually say, yeah, I should have, uh, I should have started a little earlier, you know, underestimated the amount of planning that, that, that needs to, needs to take place so that they don't really have a, a very efficient outcome. And mm-hmm. so you've really got to build a, build a team of, of trusted advisors around you to, to help you through this, this process. So, yeah. And you should, you should bear in mind that, you know, at the end of the day, your goal is to have enough wealth that you can be financially free and not have to worry about money for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, that's the goal. And so could you have gotten another $100,000 if, if you'd spend another couple of years working on it? Yeah, but is that the best use of your time? I work with a lot of people who are retired and, and the, one of the big struggles of transitioning from being a business owner to retirement is transitioning away from seeing the people at work every day and trying to find peace in focusing your attention away from the business mm-hmm. and trying to to find purpose and 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 meaning in other parts of your life those are hard enough challenges on their own and it takes a while to get used to that as well so you know i i, I think that there, that's the real magic of being a successful retiree is finding um, purpose and meaning and fulfillment in retirement. And so those are, that's a bigger challenge I think than many retire, many retirees are ready for. And I think it's an especially difficult transition for entrepreneurs. And so, you know, I do think that that is also an important aspect of the, of the exit planning process is to, is to have a good plan for, for filling this whole, this this big hole in your life that that you really had been piling all of your heart and soul into for so long. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's the emotional roller coaster ride of post exit is a very real thing, and we've seen it directly with you know some of our clients that didn't really have that mapped out. I mean, their whole identity. Their whole identity is wrapped around the company and what they've been able to develop and create. And, you know, it's definitely a key thing that I try to coach our folks on, which is like, you need to figure out when this deal is done and you wake up on, you know, Monday morning next week, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And, you know, most people don't really think about that a whole lot. And then a few months later, they're like, shoot, I mean, I don't want to golf every day. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm bored. Like, I mean, I need to be engaged, use my brain and like keep going. And, and so that definitely is something that needs to be thought through, which kind of brings me through, like if, you know, for, 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 for the listeners out there, if you're still with us here, there's five simple questions that you can kind of think through yourself as you develop your own purpose and, and legacy. And, and, and the first one is, what do you want to accomplish in your life? And who are the people that matter most to you? And what do you want your legacy to be? What are your main concerns? And how do you plan to achieve your life's vision? Those are five very simple questions that I think you can spend a lot of time chewing on. And I think if you can get through some of those, uh, you start to gain some clarity in terms of what your next steps look like. So, well, Justin, thank you for hopping on with me here this morning and spending a few of your valuable minutes with me and in, in the audience here. And, and also, I wanted to remind the, the listeners out there, this piece that you put out called Uncommon Success. It's a great piece. If you're interested, just shoot us an email and we'll send you a copy. Justin, any parting thoughts before we finish here? Well, something you said earlier just reminded me of a quote that I really love, which is uh, from a Sufi poet whose name was Rumi. And he said, when I was, when I was young, I was clever and I tried to change the world. Now I'm wise and I change myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is one of the big things that we learn throughout our lives is that it's much easier to change our perspective and our, and our focus and learn about what makes us fulfilled than to try to force the world to fulfill us. And so I, I do think that that really resonates with what you, what you just said about, you know, defining your legacy. And a lot of us are just so busy in the day to day that we don't take the time to do that. But, but it is really important. And it's especially important for business owners because they have such a big focus on, on this singular purpose. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough. It's really tough to make that transition, but I wish everyone the best of luck with that. Yeah, this uh, that's a that's a topic I think we could, could spend hours on is uh, you know figuring out to be how, <laughs> how to be content with oneself. You know that's a that's a <laughs> that's a very big challenge for many people, especially in today's day and age with social media and everything that's going on. So anyway, well, listen, uh, Justin, again, thank you so much, and for the listeners out there, thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Hope you found it valuable, and with that. We'll let you go and take care and be well. On behalf of our entire team, we hope you enjoyed this program. And if you have any questions or would like to stay in the loop with our educational and informative events that are in person and virtual throughout the year, send us an email at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time, take care and be well.